So welcome to our leadership seminar, leadership development seminar. My name is Wes Pastor, and I had the privilege of preaching this morning, and now I have the privilege of, of doing this little class with you. So I thought we'd start by looking at your brochure that I just passed out. This is really an abridgment. It's, it's, a, it's a digest, a very compressed digest of what we do essentially in our eight-month residency program. Uh, 30, 31 years ago, uh, I planted Christ Memorial Church. I pastored that church for over 30 years, and about eight years into it, after a series of uh, several meetings over four years, we launched this thing called NETS, which stands for the New England uh, Training and Sending Center uh, for Church Planting and Revitalization. Um, if, you, if you Google this and just Google NETS, you will get the basketball team. They're not a very good basketball team. Uh, but if you Google the NETS Center, you'll, you'll get right to our website and you'll be able to kind of see what we're all about. So we launched NETS formally uh, after planting our first church. We launched NETS formally in 2000. So this is year the, the year 23, June of uh, uh, 2000. So we just completed our 23rd year. And what we do is we recruit men who are either just about to finish their first level degree in seminary, their master's degree in seminary, or have finished, we recruit them. We've had several PhD guys as well, and they come up and they participate in our residency program. And the best way to think about that residency program is it's like a medical residency program. So they kind of do their book learning, and then they come up, and we sort of take that, hopefully develop that, and also allow them to apply that in a supervised ministry context all for the purpose of eventually, Lord willing, sending them out either to plant or revitalize, primarily in New England, uh, not exclusively. Now, what you have in the middle of this brochure is a little pyramid. It's not a pyramid scheme. It's just a pyramid. And this pyramid uh, sort of encapsulates what we try to do as we're working with these guys for eight months, and sometimes we extend it uh, for for another year. We just had Garrett Halbert, who's from your church, and we extended it for two more years. Part of it was the first year was a COVID year. Everything was locked down. It was a terrible year for everybody. Uh, then we extended it for a year, and as we were figuring out what we were going to do, it was expedient to extend it for a second year where he was getting acclimated to the scenario where he's going to plant. So we have sent him out to Connecticut. We planted a church in Connecticut in 2014. That church is flourishing, and Garrett is their first church planter. Uh, they've already uh, acquired a building, um, and they went in and fixed it up. It's kind of a starter home, uh, if you will, uh, but they're going to use that, and... Uh, um, and 
Garrett's hoping to launch in, in 2024, the fall of 2024. But this is the program that we took him through. And so there's, there's a method to this madness. Uh, the method is, first we start at the bottom of the pyramid with personal and family sort of matters. We're, that's what we're going to be talking about today. I summarize it as life. We're going to talk about life. You know, Paul said to Timothy, uh, watch over carefully your life and doctrine. So this is about life. We're trying to be sure that we have the personal qualifications to be a leader in the church. And that doesn't uh, matter whether or not you're vocationally a leader or you're a lay elder, as they might call it. Um, it's, the, it's very, very much the same. There are a few distinctions, but it's very much the same. And so that's what we work on first. And you can notice there's a special track just for the wives. So Heidi was in uh, my wife's track all that time, and uh, she did great. And uh, she has really seized the vision to be a leader for women's ministry in the upcoming church plant, God willing. Um, based then on that is the second tier of the pyramid, if you're looking at it, which is what we call exegesis, theology, and preaching. So we're now trying to take a particular candidate who has essentially finished his MDiv work. We're trying to help them really hone their exegetical skills, um, crystallize their theology, um, and really begin to develop their preaching. You don't learn to preach in seminary. Uh, you, you might get a couple of 15 or 20 minute sermonettes if you have a church that has the, 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 the wherewithal and ability, and most seminary churches don't because they've got all these faculty members from the seminary. It's hard to get, uh, you know, it's hard to get a, a place in line to actually preach to the church itself. So we're working on that. We're sending them out. Uh, you know, we're working their tails off to get ready for that sermon. They have to do exegetical outlines. They have to do homiletical outlines. They have to do translation work. Uh, we, we beat them up pretty good in that preparation. And then they go and preach, and we beat them up even more. Um, part of the thinking of our program is, you know, churches are going to be rougher on a pastor than our program is. Now, you know, I know that probably sounds uh, like I'm prejudiced. I'm not prejudiced. I just know that's how it works. You know, you, you preach, and everyone might give you a nice handshake at the end, of the, at the, end of, the, of the sermon, but, you know, when they get to the car, then it comes out. You know, the claws come out. Like, he went at least 15 minutes too long. Uh, so we're, we're kind of preparing them for that and giving them a little bit of that. One of the hardest things is to tell a pastor that his sermons are boring. You've got to do something that makes me want to listen to you. Uh, you know, you don't have to become vaudevillian, but you've got to do something. More illustrations. Come on, show some energy. Make me want to listen to you. Don't assume I want to listen to you. So we work the guys pretty good because when you go out to plant a church, it's about all you got. Uh, there's no programs. There's no kids thing. You've got Sunday morning. And you've got you to gotta make a good first impression, which doesn't mean we're playing fast and loose. You're preaching the text. You're preaching the gospel. Uh, you're taking no prisoners with that. But your sermon construction 
is very thoughtful. And it, it's, you know, what Martin Lloyd-Jones called it, logic on fire. There's a, there's a real sense in which you're moving somewhere. So that's that section. And we're also working on theology. We want to hone soteriology. One of the things we really want to do is help people have a good conversion paradigm. Have you ever heard that phrase, a conversion paradigm? You know what I mean by that? What I mean by that is that we're developing soul physicians. And one of the things that soul physicians have to be able to do is to diagnose souls well. It's very easy to present well on Sunday morning. The question is, what's really going on in someone's heart? What's the difference between someone who professes the faith and someone who really possesses the faith? And so we're, we're working very diligently to help through shepherding, through talking about stories from the past, uh, to distinguish, help them to distinguish so that they can help others consider that maybe they're really not Christians. Maybe the reason their marriage is a train wreck for the last 15 years is because they or both them and their spouse aren't Christians. Um, I've got a person that I'm working with. I've been working with her and her husband for about the last eight months. And as we have worked through the situation, she got up last Sunday in church and shared that she wasn't a believer. Um, And uh, that was the product of many meetings where we were going through not only biblical texts, but I had her reading various things and it's helpful if the husband is not afraid of the process. In this case, it was a wife because he also was helping. And this is a huge breakthrough. This is a huge breakthrough. I believe she's entered the doorway to freedom. She hasn't laid hold of Christ. I'm confident she will just because of the progress that I've seen in coming to terms. She grew up a believer. There was no reason for her to start to think like that. But as we got down, when we ran the tests, she kept coming into the doctor's office, so to speak. We kept saying, yeah, these uh, these vitals aren't good. And they haven't been good for a long time. So we're talking about good theology. We're trying to overturn any remnants of holiness theology. We'll hear more about that later on. But that's the devil in American theology, is holiness theology. And evangelicalism has a latent strain of holiness theology that has gummed up the works, confused us about the nature of true faith, what true faith actually looks like. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Then the third track, we're still in our pyramid scheme here, uh, the third track is leadership and management. This is one of the areas where seminaries, they just don't have the, the, the ability or, in many cases, the personnel uh, to be able to help prospective pastors with this. Um, and some of the areas that we're talking about are areas that have been maybe traditionally viewed as taboo, like budgeting. I'm not saying that the pastor should be counting the deposits after, the, after church or running the budget meeting, but he better understand how financial statements work. Um, I'm able to help our guys. I've got an MBA in accounting. I worked as an accountant for five years. I understand. I taught accounting in college. I understand 
how financial statements work. I understand how cash flow works. Every pastor, he doesn't have to be an accountant, but you know when, uh, uh, when the devil fell, he fell into the budget committee. Um, there's all kinds of trouble when it comes to money. And invariably, there's business specialists that are on the board that think they know everything. Now, they probably know a lot, but the pastor can't just be, well, I don't know whatever you think. Because the pastor's the one casting vision. That's also a part of leadership. And if he's going to cast vision, he better make sure there's a reasonable way, not just a Hail Mary, to fund that vision. Um, and so elders have to be alert to these kinds of things and be able to, to talk intelligently uh, about all that sort of stuff. So we're talking about leadership. We're talking about being clear as to what the mission of the church is. You know, there's a lot of confusion, especially with social justice ministries. There's a lot of confusion as to the mission of the church. And so we have to be clear about that, but with with a sweetness about our temper. Uh, some of the guys that are hurling spears at anyone that even says the word social justice, they're not very friendly people. Um, I, I don't want our leaders to be like that. I want them to be crystal clear but, you know, the church is a big tent. There's going to be a lot of people in heaven that you're probably not too excited are going to be there. Uh, maybe me. Uh, you know, uh, what, what did one professor say? He said, you know, when I get to heaven, there'll be three things that surprise me. Number one, who's not there. Number two, who is there. And you know number three, that I'm there. And so we want to, we want to create in our leadership style an ecumenical kind of a spirit, recognizing there are real differences. And our church has to be clear about what it's trying to do, including, and I would say most of all, including its mission. But we don't need to do that. Uh, you know, one of my pastors, first guy that went out and planned, he, he deemed his church's <laughs> theology Calvinism with a smile. I like that. Calvinism with a smile, not with an old frowny, grumpy face, condemning everybody for being hell-deserving Arminians. No, we, we don't want that kind of a spirit. It's not helpful. It doesn't honor or glorify God. So all of that under leadership. And then shepherding and ministry. I've probably lost half of you already with what I've said. I'll just keep going. Shepherding and ministry. What are we talking about there? That's kind of the nuts and bolts. We're talking about how do you shepherd people, both in a group and individually? How do you counsel people? Something we call gospel counseling. How do you evangelize individually? And how do you move a church toward having a culture of outreach and evangelism? There's a reason that churches stagnate. Um, and sometimes a church can be growing, but it's still really stagnating. It just is growing for other reasons. And so the wise shepherd and the wise elder board needs to be clear in looking at what are the vital what are the vital signs for a church to be actually growing in a healthy way. One of the things is, are they reproducing? Are they reproducing? Is is this church just existing, or is a particular church somehow on the road and creating a culture of reproduction? The Great Commission demands it. We're to make disciples of all the nations. And those disciples can't just be floating about, can they? They have to be 
affiliated, attached to some local church. And so we're trying to reproduce shepherding and all kinds of ministry. So that's really the framing of what we're going to be doing. We're going to be doing a, uh, not dumbed down, but certainly compressed, very compressed version of that. So let me just stop right there and see if there are any questions that you have uh, about anything that I've said so far. Is it making sense? Do you see the logic of it? Kind of building from the ground up. So I've got on your outline there uh, what we're going to, you can keep that uh, brochure, uh, what we're uh, looking at for the remaining two sessions for 2023. On the 5th of November, we'll have session two. So this is life today. Doctrine part one will be on the 5th. Uh, we'll look at hermeneutics, exegesis, and preaching. And I'm making a recommendation. You don't have to do this if you don't want to. There's a little book. I bet it's ten bucks. Uh, written by a guy named David King called Your Old Testament Sermon Needs to Get Saved. <laughs> I've read that book. It's kind of a an abstract of a larger book by a fellow named Dennis Johnson, Him We Proclaim. And Dennis Johnson was a, was a disciple. He teaches at Westminster Escondido. He was a disciple of Edmund Clowney. Edmund Clowney is, in my mind, probably one of the most significant preaching instructors in the 20th century with a very clear, very clear Christocentric hermeneutic. So this is a very readable version of that. And so if, if you want to follow a little more closely, it's very thin. I forgot to bring my copy with you. It's very thin. It's very readable. David's a great guy, and I think you'll, you'll enjoy that read. So that's what we're going to be doing for session two. For session three which is the 10th of December. Um, and that one's on exegesis and theology. I'd like you to read one of two books. You can read Religious Affections. If you've never read Jonathan Edwards, it's worth doing. It, it may be a bucket list kind of a thing. Like, I really should read at least one thing by Jonathan Edwards before I die. Um, but he's tough reading. You know, he's a little bit like John Owen. You know why those guys are so hard to read? It's not just that they're smart. They were educated in Latin. And so they write English like you would write Latin. And Latin and Greek are highly inflected languages, and they have very, very complicated sentence structures. You see that in the scriptures. Like most of you know Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3, goes all the way to verse 14, one sentence. Uh, you know, the, the seventh grade English teacher would be putting red marks all over that. Uh, but when you have a highly inflected language like that, it has the ability to modify the modifiers on and on and on. And their, their sentence structure is just hard to follow. So, Sam Storms, who is a, a modern-day theologian, took Edward's book, Religious Affections, his treatise, and sort of did a Religious Affections for Dummies. Um, now, you're not a dummy if you choose to read that. It's just easier to read. And I've read that, and it's a very, very 
careful interpretation of Edwards. Storms is an Edwards devotee. So he really worked hard to represent Edwards correctly. So either one of those, um, either Signs of the Spirit by Sam Storms or uh, Edwards' Religious Affections, you might be able to find Religious Affections online, but don't try to read it the week of the seminar. You'd need to start well in advance because it'll, it'll be a little bit slow going and uh, you'll, you'll think, man, I'm glad this guy wasn't my pastor. I could have never. He preached twice every Sunday, two hours of crack. Um, and, uh, and he wrote treatises like this. So that will be helpful in really crystallizing your conversion paradigm. Um, so that's what we've got going up through the end of the year. And then right now, at least tentatively, um, Logan is planning three more sessions for me to do three more sessions in the, the winter and the spring. Okay, let me stop there. Any, any questions about any of that? All right. Did any of you get a chance, and it's fine if you didn't, did any of you get a chance to uh, look at that at elder qualifications based on that uh, attachment that I sent to you? It's like pages 27 to 58. Did you get a chance to look at that? And it's fine if you didn't. Do you have it with you? And if not, I've got, I've got copies of it right here. So, I want to ask you some questions. What hit you about the elder qualifications, or if you want to zoom out a little bit, about the leadership profile from the pastoral epistles? What were some things that hit you or stood out to you? You know, a lot of times you read something, you're kind of wondering, what, what's sticking with me? What What's stuck on the wall, so to speak, when you threw up all these different ideas? Um, uh, what were some of the ones? Let's just get a little dialogue going here and uh, see if we can find a good pathway to get into this. Any, anything else? Obviously, anything at all. Obviously, this was my attempt to interpret the elder qualifications. Uh, I did this for a, a master's thesis when I was at the University of Wales. But that doesn't mean it's correct. It means I made a, an effort at it. Um, but what hit you? Uh, as you were musing on that, as you were just going through it, what, what, are some, uh, what are some observations maybe that you made? It's, uh, and I'm going to ask you to say your name just to help me, and I'll get to know some of them. Yeah, Michael Munson. Michael. Uh, just that multiple, right? Anytime that there's mention of elders, it's or going through how they established the churches. It was multiple, not singular. Yes, yes, a plurality. By the way, does anyone know their church history well enough to know how it, by the second century, had become uh, a singular authority, a bishop? Uh, does anyone know what, at least in my mind, are the best theories for why that happened? Thoughts on that? Potentially, Michael? they were the church was becoming more well established, and there were some heresies 
that were starting to creep up in the churches. And yes. Sometimes they, perhaps they thought that, okay, we need to, you know, we've got multiple elders, but this gentleman needs, you know, we need to appoint somebody who kind of, in a sense, represents us uh, as they refute these heresies and, and try to hold the, the early church together. Yes. That's very perceptive, Michael. And what would we call that person today in our plurality structure? Senior pastor. I think what happened was the main teaching, or as your bulletin says, the main preaching pastor would have been likely that guy. And they weren't careful, and now this is my interpretation, to make sure that the plurality didn't get lost um, in the fight to keep the faith. Um, and uh, quite frankly, you know, monarchies are just more efficient. Uh, uh, you know, they, uh, that's, that's the three forms of church government. Did you know that? So if the, if the authority is vested in one person, like Episcopalian, uh, you call that a monarchy. If the authority is vested in a few, like an elder rule church, like faith community, you call that an oligarchy. If the authority is vested in the entire congregation, do you know what you call that? Anarchy. <laughs> now, I'll get in trouble for that one. I'll get in trouble for that one. All right, so that seems to be what happened, is that uh, there was a movement to a, a singular bishop who was the great defender of the faith. And we read about those guys. What else did you observe? So plurality. Yeah, plurality seems very clear in the New Testament. What else? About leadership. Profile or specifically elder qualifications. That your personal life needs to be, it needs to be right. If you're going to lead, you're going to lead a church of people and you need to be able to, you know, like the scripture says, Okay. All right. So there, there. Here, character matters. Not only does character matter. You know, a lot of jobs, character doesn't matter, does it? It really doesn't matter. And especially now that there's so many people working remotely, character has never mattered less than now because you know teamwork. Uh, you know, you can get on the Zoom call and cross out the video part and, you know, fix yourself a sandwich. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a whole different world. But in church leadership, character matters. And when you think about the character that's being promoted, required in the pastoral epistles, is there any summary kinds of characteristics that uh, you noted, uh, those of you that had a chance to, to read it, or just from your general Exposure. They've got to live biblically. Okay. Can we can we be more specific? What was your name, sir? David. David. Sorry, David. Self, ah, self-control. You know, turn with me to Titus chapter one. And just because of the the taping scenario, I'm going to go ahead and read it. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. 
Paul says this to Titus. He said, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not, self, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he would be able to both exhort in, in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. When you look at that list in verse 7, all of those things relate to self-control, don't they? Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not fond of sordid gain. All of those things have to do with being able to control myself. And so, I think it's reasonable when you're talking about elder qualifications as it relates to character to summarize it under the phrase, and what was your name, sir? Brandon. Brandon. To summarize it under the phrase Brandon used, self-control. That's a great kind of quick uh, hitter to really get a handle on what God's looking for in terms of character. Now, by the way, the word blameless, what does that mean in your mind? Or above reproach, as the older translations say. Same word. What do we mean when we're saying that an elder needs to be blameless or above reproach? Be careful with that. Any thoughts? Brandon, morally upright. Okay. What does that mean? He doesn't have a habitual sin or propensity that would you know, that someone could accuse him rightfully so. Okay. Might have to do with the depth of his struggle and how observable that depth is. What else? Morally upright, blameless, above reproach. Because if you're given to introspection, this could be very troubling. Yes, sir. What's your name? David. David. Uh, respected by, by others. I think not putting yourself in positions to, to uh, even just have questions on the lifestyle that you might be living in. Okay, so he's respected by others. What is David getting at with that idea? Character. He's getting a character, but he's, giving, he's getting at observable character. Public conduct. Because if it was blameless in the heart, then who's qualified? Nobody is. Now you say, well, isn't that a little dangerous? Because what if this person is just very good at covering up. Well, that is a possibility. It will eventually manifest itself. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks and the body acts. And so that's one of the reasons we see the admonition in 1 Timothy to be slow about the laying on of hands. Give the situation a chance to develop and let's see what we've really got there. So, we're talking about public conduct, knowing that what's actually down deep will eventually manifest itself publicly.
So, blameless in character, we're talking about, I think, essentially being self-controlled. Well, what about this family management requirement? What do you what do you take from that? How would you translate that? I mean, it's easy to say, well, you've got to manage your own house well. Okay, what on earth does that mean? We do get some specific information in our two passages, Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. What hits you from those two passages? If you don't have your family managed well, you're not able to give yourselves to the broader family church family. Okay, what was your name, sir? Peter. Peter. So, obviously, there's a bandwidth issue. Because uh, if your own family is kind of in disarray, uh, you're sort of preoccupied, aren't you? Okay. What else? Is, is there a sense in which, um, <clears throat> when you look at one's family, it would reflect on the leadership of the father specifically? I think it's more than a sense. In fact, if anyone has First Timothy three, I think Brandon's right on it. Why don't you read verses 4 and 5 of 1 Timothy 3, where those elder qualifications are, are laid out. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? All right, there's a lot there in those two little verses. But one of the things is exactly what Brandon said. Our ability to evaluate somebody's leadership or management skill uh, uh, is, is, is on display in the way that they manage their own family. Where, by the way, they've got all the cards in the deck. You, you know, you've got someone who's sworn to stay with you till death do you part. Um, and, and you've got little kids that are pretty easy to boss around. You know, I used to tell my kids, uh, we had five kids, and I love the movie Ben-Hur, which, by the way, won as many Academy Awards as all three of The Lord of the Rings. Just saying. And, but Ben-Hur, of course, became a galley slave, the Roman Empire, and the, the guy that was controlling the galley slaves used to say, we keep you alive uh, uh, let me see. We keep you alive to serve this ship, row well, and live. And I used to tell my kids that almost every week. Keep you alive. And they're like, yeah, yeah, Dad, we saw the movie. You know, that's really funny. Uh, but if you can't manage that, it's small, it's intimate, there is a default setting of commitment already there, then what First Timothy is saying is how in the world are you going to manage this unwieldy thing called the Church of God. You can't. And so, it's kind of a, it's kind of a laboratory to test whether someone uh, can manage or not. Now, by the way, does that mean that elders have to be married? Ooh. That's a good question. Here's a wise biblical answer. Are you ready? I don't know. My inkling is no. I think... Jesus would qualify to be an elder. The Apostle Paul, though he was probably married earlier, uh, wasn't married during his ministry. I think he'd qualify to be an elder. I wouldn't want John Stott not to be able to be on my elder board. Now, you say, well, are you really arguing biblically? No, I'm arguing from silence using examples. Uh, 
but I think a single man can be an elder. It's a little harder to evaluate this management criteria, but probably looking at how he manages, maybe he is some sort of a supervisor or department leader on his job. Or maybe you've uh, seen him manage ministries in the church and gotten a feel for how does he work with people? Does he have a nice... Does he have a nice feel about him? I think there's other ways to get at it. It's a little trickier, but I think it can be done. So this management criteria. Now, what do you think it means that he's to be the husband of one wife? That's a very debated phrase. The husband of one wife. Seems pretty clear. You're either married or you're not. And if you are married, you better be the one person. Okay, so mainly, outli- mainly uh, uh, disallowing polygamy. Is that is that what you're saying? What was your name, sir? Mark. Mark. Or is it divorce? Uh, okay. What do you think about divorce? What do you think about remarriage? Would there be any conditions in which somebody could be remarried and still qualify to be an elder? Is that the main thing that this passage is getting at? Now, what's the position? Hold that thought. What's the position of Faith Community Church regarding remarriage and divorce? Well, we have varying positions on the other board. Uh, so no, no, no church-wide <laughs> position. No, no, no. Logan's position is permanent. Yeah, I hold to a permanent view. Not all the elders do, um, but the elders who don't would, would hold that uh, remarriage is liable for death. Of course, all, all of us would, um, but also if it was dissolved, with the exception clause in mind. Okay, all right. Yeah, so you've got a, a kind of a tricky theological issue, and that is, is the marriage bond indissoluble? Or are there, is there anything other than death that dissolves the marriage bond? That's really the question. Of course, the classic Westminster Confession of Faith, Second London Baptist Confession would say that unchastity dissolves a marriage bond, as does desertion. And that would then free someone to be remarried. You'd have to decide that. At our church, if someone has been divorced and it was under one of those two conditions, we would allow them. My personal view is the same as Logan's. I think the marriage bond is indissoluble. But the position we took as a church, per my recommendation, was to take Westminster as our standard, which says the marriage bond is dissolvable uh, under those two conditions that Logan just said. And so, if that's the case, then we would, we would allow someone to be remarried. Also, uh, remarried, become an elder. Also, what do you do if someone got divorced when they were an unbeliever? That's a tricky situation as well. Um, but that aside, is that what this passage is talking about when it says husband of one man? I'm sorry. <laughs> husband of one woman. Oh, my goodness. Husband of one woman. That's an easy one. I think it's talking, it's broadly the same thing, but it's talking about infidelity. That you need to be faithful to your wife, which I think ties into what Mark is saying, but it's particu- I don't think it's particularly targeting uh, polygamy or divorce remarriage issues as much as fidelity. 
It's talking about, are you faithful to your wife? You know how we say it at Christ Memorial Church? We say, can the guy pass the happy wife test? What does it mean? Why would we use it? Yes, sir. What is your name? Zach. Zach. Okay, it might speak to your provision for her needs. What else, Mark? I mean, I just go to the passage on marriage, and I think if she respects her husband, I think that's a big component. If she has to respect her husband as the word calls, that would allude to the fact that she at least, maybe she's not happy, but yeah. she's still following God's calling. Okay, all right. Uh I'm a little nervous about that uh, because you're right. She may not be happy at all. But, you know, she's, uh, if anybody has read the recent unauthorized biography on Elizabeth Elliot uh, that recently came out, um, her, her third marriage, she wasn't happy at all. But she was, she was submitting to her husband. I would say he wasn't passing the uh, yeah. the happy wife test, and he says that in the book. He admits he was a jerk. He really does. Um, happy wife test. How about the idea of flourishing? Now, that word I know gets thrown around, but I think a man that is managing his wife well will be a man whose wife is flourishing. Uh, it's it's kind of like any of you any of you ride horses. See if any of you raise your hand if you ride horses. Oh, maybe maybe one. What's your name, sir? David. David. So I I have little interest in horses, but I had a daughter who was a horse girl, and uh, she bugged me and she bugged me, and I finally bought a couple of horses for. Her. I, I named them. They were older horses, Morgan horses. Uh, one of them had asthma. So I named him Asthma, and and the other one was much older than he was. So I named her Glue Stick. Uh, so Asthma and Glue Stick, and uh, but my daughter. So she was in high school. She's like, Dad, come on, I want you to go ride with me. I'm like, I don't want to get near those stinking animals. I don't have anything to do with them. You go ride, enjoy yourself. But she broke me down, and so she started teaching me how to ride. Um, and I quickly learned that there's two no-nos in riding. One is holding the reins too tightly, and the other is holding the reins too loosely. If you hold them too tightly, the horse will just continually throw his head and be uncomfortable. That bit's pressing against his mouth. But too loosely, immediately, he's eating. Um, so I had, to, I had asthma. I had to work with asthma and find out where that place was. And I think... That's a good analogy for how we're managing our wives. Yes, we're the head of our wives. Uh, she is under our authority. I'm not playing fast and loose with complementarianism, but a heavy-handed application of that is going to be oppressive. And so a husband needs to learn how to manage his wife holding the reins just right. And that gives you a good insight into how he'll manage the people in the church. Not with this iron fist, not loosey-goosey, letting everybody just do whatever they want to do, but I think it's, it's in the middle. And, and I think that's what we're trying to do. And also with our kids. That same analogy works. 
And what is the standard that's given? Titus 1, I'm going to read it again. I want to put some tension in the line. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. What does that mean? Having children who believe. This is one of the reasons it's it's worth knowing a little something about original languages. How many think that an elder has to have believing children, believing converted children? Let me just see a show of hands if that's what you believe. Did I misread the Bible? Let me read it again. <laughs> if any man is above reproach, a husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So why is it that you don't believe that that means that the children have to be converted. Why don't you believe that? Yes, sir, what's your name? Uh, Mike Schneider. Mike. Uh, because we can't change their hearts. I mean, we can do everything that we can do, but it's only God that can grow. All right. Well, let's agree with that. I think we would agree with that, with our theology. So I guess that means that only elders where God has changed the hearts of their children uh, are qualified. That could be one interpretation. Yes, that could. Dave? There should be at least solid discipline within that household. Even if the children don't believe, if they're disciplined, it shows that he's at least managing his household. Yes, but I'm playing devil's advocate here. You just dumb the standard down. I get it. I get what you're saying. Does anyone have a King James Version? Or does anyone read the King James? Yes, what's your name? Emmanuel. Emmanuel? Could you read... That same verse in your King James translation? Verse 6. Titus 1, verse 6. Read that again only about double the volume. Stand up like you did and just double the volume so everyone can hear. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot. Okay, so do you see how the King James translated? Same Greek word. They translated it faithful instead of believing. Um, Most of the translations translate it believing. Uh, I find it very interesting. What's being tested here? What's being tested, I think, comes through in the two modifying clauses. Having faithful or believing children. What does that mean? Paul, oh, I'll tell you, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, which is what David was getting at. It's not that they're converted. That could be a standard. Mike is right. That could be the standard. But what's being tested is their management capacity. Can you manage your children so they're not riotous, incorrigible children? And if you can't do that, again, what's the problem? You won't be able. Yes, sir. Jerry. Jerry. And if all they have is a baby, how are you going to test? Well, that's right. That would that would automatically mean, but that's kind of a pragmatic argument. It's a good argument, but I think it's kind of pragmatic. You would say, well, they can't be an elder until they're actually elderly. Uh, and some people have held to that position as well. But again, you've got problems with guys like Timothy. What do you do with a guy like Timothy who is told to let no man despise his youth. 
Okay, there's a way to act when you're a young leader to make sure that you don't automatically disqualify yourself or discredit yourself in the eyes of others. So I think we're getting at the management criteria, and you need to be a blameless manager. So for someone to be an elder, he has to in some way demonstrate that he can manage people. He can manage people. Remember, we're in the people business. Yes, sir. Brandon? Um, I was going to ask if, so along with the management in the, the child, the children that are believers, not open the charge of debauchery and subordination as my ESV says, could you also say there's a doctrine <laughs> sent in that, that the children can be, have been taught in the faith, even if they may not be believers? And it's, it's clear that this man has a clear grasp of, of again, like sound doctrine, and he is has actively sought to, to pass that on to his children? Um, I think that's a good idea. I'm not sure how, how easy that is to get at. And I, I don't think that's what's being required here. But in terms of general shepherding prowess, uh, you know, you kind of would like to not have his kids be the dumbest kids in the Sunday school class. You know, uh, that would be problematic. Uh, they also don't need to be the most precocious kids in the Sunday school class, but there's nothing against that. But I don't think you're particularly looking at that. Now, if they're the most riotous kids in the Sunday school class, um, that at least uh, should stimulate some discussion. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that's tricky is helping dads that have boys versus girls. Uh, you know, today after the service, uh, a, a little, I don't know, five or six-year-old girl came up and gave me, she had made me a picture. Now, being the pastor for 30 years like I was, I have gotten a lot of pictures over the years. I mean, gobs of them. <coughs> Because we had gobs of kids, and they all, every single one of them, came from a girl. I never received one picture from a boy. Why is that? Because boys are eating the pencils during the service, you know, or they're poking the sister as she's trying to color. And then as soon as it's over, they start running around. Um, so there has to be some grace given to recognize that that little boys. One time I was being interviewed to come on as a church planter for, by this denomination. And we were in this big outside lodge, and it had this huge two-story stone fireplace. And Sue and I's back, uh, backs were to the fireplace. We had, our, we had four kids at the time. And uh, while I'm being interviewed, the interviewer, who would be my boss, said, I don't want to scare you, but your son is climbed up about halfway up that fireplace. <laughs> now, none of the little girls were really interested in doing this. <laughs> so there, there, is some, there is some allowance for that. But if they're just continually... What, you know what I look for in trying to help this? I want to see. I've got a son that's got seven daughters. Seven daughters. I... Uh, he, he's, he's already asking me how much his, in, his inheritance is going to be. <laughs> Dad, can you just give me a ballpark figure? And, uh, and uh, 
And he, I, I call his approach to discipline the free-range chicken approach to management. Um, but here's the thing. When he says to the girls, stop, they stop. Even though his tolerances, he drives my wife and I crazy because he's got this huge tolerance for chaos. But when he says stop, they stop. And if they don't, he's all over them. And I think that's what you're looking for. You're not looking for some uniform standard like, like you've got to raise your kid in some sort of cookie-cutter mold. You're looking for whether or not he has control. Do they heed his word? The last one, holding and teaching, holding to and teaching the apostolic doctrine, the apostolic gospel. Now, this is a tricky one because the question is, what does it mean? that you have to be able to exhort in sound doctrine, as Titus says, and refute those who counterdict. We can get the idea of holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. That's, that's being orthodox, holding to the apostolic doctrine about Christ, about God. You know what we're talking about there. But it's that part of being able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Does that suggest to you that if needed, that elder should be in the preaching rotation, necessarily. In other words, do elders need to be gifted as teachers? I'm getting some head nods. Okay. And what does it mean to be gifted as a teacher? Okay, all right. The ability to state things plainly, clearly. Other thoughts on this? Yes, Jerry. I think that um, if they're, they can still not be a gifted teacher, but be a gifted counselor. Um, okay. They, they might be a boring pastor, a boring preacher, and not really be able to play any good from the pulpit. But when they see a man that's out of line, they can, they can yes. give him sound doctrine. Okay. Here's where you're wrong. All right. Other thoughts? So if you read what I wrote in the handout that you got, uh, I don't think they have to be gifted. I do think there is a gift of teaching. I don't necessarily think that, that all elders have to be gifted, but they do have to be able to exhort in sound doctrine, and I don't think that necessarily means from the pulpit. I'm not even sure they had that back in these days. They probably had little house churches. Maybe they came together every so often. Um, but in that context, an elder, he needed to teach what was sound doctrine. And, of course, in the book of Titus, we have a lot of that listed. What's in accordance with sound doctrine or all those characteristics in chapter 2. And he needs to be able to spot a heretic and refute him and say, Joel Osteen is wrong. Say to, say to his people, don't follow that. That's bad news. Um, 
And I don't think that necessarily, just giving you my opinion, that that necessarily means that you're gifted. Now, what I like about that is it also accords with the, the, the qualifications. The bar is significant, but it's not that super high to be an elder in the church. In fact, look again at Titus chapter 1. So, he's to be not self-willed. Okay. He's not to be quick-tempered. He's not to be a drunk. He's not to be a brawler. He's not to be greedy. Those are, those are pretty basic character qualifications, wouldn't you say? I mean, you wouldn't want a guy on your elder board who, who wasn't like that. Uh, so, I think the bar is significant, but it's not so high that Paul couldn't double back on that first missionary journey. Remember what he did? He doubled back, and what did he do in every city? He appointed elders. That's right. I mean, how... How long did he have to really figure these guys out? I think their reputations, you know, is this guy a drunk? No. Is, is he a brawler? No. Uh, is he seem to have an, an unsavory appetite for money? No. Um, is, he, is he controlled in his temper? Is, is he controlled in terms of his will? Um, yeah, you're in. You know, well, plus we've got to look at his family. But I'm just saying, I think you're looking for solid men who know the gospel, can articulate the gospel clearly, as David said, but are not necessarily pulpiteers. They might be guys, you know, we had guys on our elder board, we've got currently 18 on our elder board, three rotate off every year. Um, A bunch of those guys, they'd empty the church in two months if you let them preach. (laughs) You just don't want those guys in the pulpit. Um, and so that doesn't mean that some of your lay elders aren't gifted no problem with that I don't think seminary training equals gifting I think seminary training develops gifting but I don't think it means they have to be seminarians I don't particularly think the argument of well the disciples weren't you don't think being with Jesus three and a half years equals a seminary degree I'll take that any day um So, I think that the blameless criteria regarding doctrine is that you're faithful to it and that you're able to articulate it in whatever the context is that you find yourself in. One-on-one, small groups, maybe large groups occasionally. Maybe even one of the uh, lay elders is put in the regular preaching rotation. There's nothing wrong with that. It's one thing to talk about the qualifications. That's a fairly objective discussion. The bigger and more challenging discussion is how do you get to that part place in your character and in your management and even in your handling of the Scripture? How do you get to that place and how do you foster what got you there so that you're growing? I think we would say an elder should be growing. We would say that about every Christian, wouldn't we? That, you know, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, Peter says in Second Peter, they'll render you neither fruitless. Uh, 
or useful in the in the kingdom of God. So we want to be growing, and I'd like to suggest that today's sermon on freedom sort of sets the stage for that. Now, before we get into what I would call the the pursuit of holiness, the process of pursuing holiness, let me just step back. I gave you another handout, actually, just for... Uh, can we pass this out a little bit? Um, this is actually a better version than the one I sent you. I cleaned it up a little bit. I don't want to assume that you're embracing what I said today in the sermon. As, as I said during the sermon, you are free to be wrong about this. Uh, it's your right as an American. I hope my sense of humor isn't off-putting there. Of course, when you're on the side of Calvin and Luther, you're on pretty good side. Um, but I want to at least give a chance for a short amount of dialogue because I threw a lot at you, and if you didn't have a chance to read this, um, you, might, you might be reeling a little bit because it's different from the way you've always read this text, which I understand. Um, so, in the interest of just simply trying to understand what I was saying, not debate me, I'm not afraid to debate, I just don't want to do that here. What I'd rather do is, if you aren't seeing it that way, Ask some questions to clarify what I taught this morning uh, and what I'm trying to say, and I'll do my best to do that. David? I kind of just have a statement I want to make about it. All right. Um, The English translation lends itself to to not have the insight that you provided because of your Greek understanding. And when you read the English translation, it sounds like it's about Paul current, not, not past. And that's my that's my tension. Yes. And I can see your point, and I get it, and I've heard it before, and, and you made a valid point. And so, but in the English translation, because all the references are to somebody who's trying, which right off the bat you think, well, if they're not, you know, the unregenerate don't try. You know, they're not trying to do good. They're not trying to do, you know, it wasn't until your Exodus um, thing that that came to light. But in the English translation, it doesn't come across like that. I mean, yes. Well, yes, you've said two things there, David. One, you've, I think, rightly acknowledged that it seems like a present struggle in the English translation because it's in the present tense. But you also said another thing, which showed a theological orientation going into the passage, which is the unregenerate don't try. And that's, that's a big... That's sort of a big stake in the ground for those that take it as a believer. They've got an anthropology uh, that really got fashioned when Augustine was debating Pelagius back in the 5th century. Um, And that anthropology carried through the Reformation, that the unbeliever is not conflicted. Um, So that, that in my mind, has to be at least evaluated because if Romans 7 is an unbeliever, if that interpretation is correct, then we have to revise our anthropology. Um, but the first point is probably one of the most popular reasons that it's taken as a believer. Now, if, if you had, I don't think the ESV does this, but the NASB in the beginning 
Anybody, any other godly men that use the NASB translation? Okay, we've got a young... Oh, look, we've got a few. If you look in the NASB translation... Um, Principles of Translation. Uh, they have this paragraph, and I'm, I'm guessing it's in yours, your Bibles as well. It says, Asterisks are used to mark verbs that are historical presents in the Greek, which have been translated with the, an English past tense in order to conform to modern usage. The translators recognize that in some contexts, the present tense seems more unexpected and unjustified to the English reader than a past tense would have been. But Greek authors frequently use the present tense for the sake of heightened vividness, thereby transporting their readers in imagination to the actual scene at the time of occurrence. However, the translators felt that it would be wise to change these historical presents to English past tenses. And if you look in the NASB, for instance, in any of the four Gospels, there's asterisks everywhere. They're everywhere. And what those asterisks are telling you is that they changed the present tense verb, believing it was a historical present tense. They changed it to a past tense verb. So when you read it in your English translations, it's a past tense. Now, the question is, why didn't they change Romans 7? if Romans 7 is a historical present. Well, they weren't convinced that it was a historical present, so they left it in the present tense. But that's a translator's decision. That's not guided by some rule. Um, that's how they interpret it. In fact, when I was at Dallas, I had a fellow named Dan Wallace as a as a Greek professor. Uh, some, some folk are familiar with him. He wrote a fairly popular intermediate Greek text. And he's very dogmatic that historical presence only occur in the third person. And we got into a little debate in class, because I'm a little ornery, and I raised my hand and I said, well, what about Romans 7? I said, if Romans 7 uh, is describing Paul's past experience, that would be an example of an historic, a historical present in the first person. And Dr. Wallace said, well, it can't be. And I said, why not? Well, because historical presents only occur in the third person. See, that's a bit of a circular reasoning, isn't it? So it's all dependent on the interpreter's take. Um, and historically, because especially due to the Reformation, Romans 7 was taken as a believer. No translator has messed with that and said that it's a historical present. But a bunch of commentators have, uh, and more and more commentators. I think the best commentary on Romans, and D.A. Carson would agree with me, uh, the best commentary, just dropping a name, uh, is, is Doug Moo. And he makes that very case for Romans 7. So a lot of commentators are arguing uh, that Romans 7 is historical present. But when you read it in the English, I agree. It looks like a present struggle. Um, but if the translators would have chosen to put it in the past, you would have known for certain. This is Paul describing his past experience. A couple of asterisks. Well, they would have done the past and then put an asterisk to tell you they changed it. Yeah, Jerry? 
But it would have had to be a lot of the verses that were running up to it. So it says, for I don't do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do want to do, the evil I do not want, is what I keep on doing. Should they have translated it, you know, I, I didn't do good before, but... Yeah, they would just have to put all those verbs in the past tense, uh, which would lose the vividness of it, uh, which is what I'm arguing. So there'd be asterisks. And they'd have asterisks, just like in the Gospels. They'd have all those in past tense uh, verbal usage, and then they'd put asterisks saying, we changed it. And if you read your Gospels, those asterisks are everywhere. They're everywhere. They're changing verbs all over the place. But the NASB is the most kind of literal translation. And so they're not wanting to make any changes that they don't tell you about. Um, they're just, they're a little more OCD about that. But the ESV doesn't have any. Are you saying that... Oh, the ESV, oh no, the ESV changed them like crazy too. They just don't have asterisks. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes, Brandon? I guess switching gears, my, my problem is probably your third one that you mentioned in your the problems with it, and it's the delight in the law of God and in man, and then to also be captive to sin. And he says that, and he says both those things in the same verse right before O wretched man. And it almost is like an, in, an unstoppable force, means an immovable object to me. I just don't. They just don't really. I understand. I understand. I understand. One of the things, just sort of anecdotally, uh, and I've had the opportunity to interact with a ton of unbelievers, and you know, I think we baptized over 500 during my ministry, and you know, a lot of these couples were coming into our office, we kind of had our own version of the Alpha Course, which was, if you come to us for marriage counseling from outside the church, we're happy to do it, and we won't charge you a nickel for it, but you have to enroll in Christianity 101. And they'd say, well, what's Christianity 101? Well, you have to start coming to church every Sunday and participate in what we're doing. You need to hear in context, what I'm going to be telling you in the counseling room. And it just was so consistent that these people with broken marriages, sometimes adultery, sometimes both people, adulterers, uh, clearly unconverted, because a number of them got converted, lamented what they were doing and knew what they were doing was wrong and we're broken over it. But, of course, we know they didn't have the power to amend their ways. Now, I'm not saying, you know, the, the fellow that's committing adultery can't help himself. We're not going to say that. But he can't change what's inside that's promoting that behavior. That we would agree on. But I would see, if you will, that joyful concurrence with what's right. He knew adultery. Thou shall not commit adultery. And even if he didn't have a church background, he knew it's kind of like what Romans 2 is saying, that the evidence of the law of God is written on their hearts. Unbelieving Gentiles. They show the evidence of the law written on their hearts. And I think that's all Paul is saying in that passage is there's, you know, the, the image of God 
when Adam fell and we with him, the image of God was not eviscerated. There is still all kinds of indicators that man was originally created in God's image. Now, the image is hopelessly marred, and only resurrection can fix it. We know that. Uh, but I see this uh, in, in, in people that are steeped in sin uh, over the years of my ministry, where when I started poking at them, uh, you know, they're like, I know what I'm doing is wrong. That's not an answer. Those are some anecdotes, Brandon, but it's good thoughts. Other questions? Yes, uh, Caleb. Yeah, so I guess one thing I'm just trying to think about, if this is Paul um, giving a you know, pre-conversion experience uh, description, what is his conclusion then in verse 25? He says, thanks be God for Jesus. So the question in verse 24 was who will deliver me from this body of death? The response in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Yes, it's a good question. Let Since you, I think you all have one of these handouts, I want you to notice that there's a very set structure that Paul follows in the unit. Page 5 of the handout in the unit from 5.1 to 8.39. Now, there is some debate whether that's the unit, but more and more commentators are coming to define it that way. Lou does in his commentary. Schreiner did in both of his commentaries on Romans. Um, 5.1 to 8.39. Look, look at it in page 5. Does everybody got that? Mm-hmm. And you can see there's an objection This is going back to chapter 6. There's an objection based on something that was said in verse 20 of chapter 5, always posed in the form of a a question. Then there's an an answer, may genota, may it never be, God forbid. Then there's a substantiation. And then there's an implication. And he follows that pattern very closely very religiously in the two big sections. So the first section is 6, 1 to 14. The second section is 6, 15 to 8, 17. Do you see it again? Objection based on what was said in 6, 14. Answer, same answer. Substantiation. There's a two-tiered substantiation for the second section. It's much larger. And then the implication is chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. Now, within that second substantiation, he has to go on a bit of an excursus because he said that while we were in the flesh, this is verse 5 of chapter 7, while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law uh, were at work in my members to bear fruit for death. Now, that was the ding, uh-oh, We've seemed to implicate the law. This grace system seems to be implicating the law. And remember, Paul is fighting against Judaizers. Those who do not like the idea that you can be justified without coming under the law. Remember the council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15? And what did the 
sort of pharisaical party say, they have to be circumcised. Yes, believe in Jesus and be circumcised, which was a way of, it was a shorthand to say you're coming under the law. You're placing yourself under the law. And Paul was saying absolutely no. In fact, the Jerusalem Council voted that way, didn't they? You don't have to be under the law. You're justified by faith alone. Letter was sent to all the churches. But the Judaizers wouldn't stop. And they dogged Paul's trail all the way. So they're not happy because now the law is being implicated. I mean, doesn't it sound like the law at least needs is a little punky? If it is the thing that's arousing my sin, or exposing might be a better word. I use the magnifying glass analogy today in the sermon. It's, it's, it comes along and it shows me how utterly sinful I am. It's, it's a straight edge. You know, if you know some people that are artistic, I, I'm, I marvel at people that can draw freehand and draw what appears to be straight lines. But if you take a draftsman's straight edge and put it up against that freehand law, uh, line, like the Phillips translation says, it shows you the law is like that straight edge. It shows us how crooked our lives really are. That straight edge reveals that that line's not really straight. Um, and so, the law seems to be uh, uh, complicit in my sin. And so, Paul now goes into a big defense of that. And he follows that same pattern. Objection. The first one, objection, based on verse 5. Is the law sin? Answer, may it never be. The substantiation. The law is not sin. It's the exposure of sin. If I had not known uh, about coveting, uh, I I would not have come to know about coveting, Paul says, uh, except through the law. Except that the law said, thou shalt not covet. Okay. And the implication in 7.12, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Uh Uh-oh. Does that mean what caused my death is something good? Or to say it another way, does that mean the grace system makes the law complicit with evil? That's really what they're getting at. They're trying to tear down the grace system. Paul says, nope. May it never be. Rather, it was sin that caused my death, not the law. It was sin through the law so that sin could be shown, magnified, to be utterly sinful because it rebelled against the good law. How sinful can you get? It's one thing to rebel against the bad law. But when you have the the beautiful, righteous law of God and you rebel against that, that shows you how sinful sin really is. So then we get to the implication. All throughout... He's noted this conflict, Caleb. The conflict is, I agree with the law. I want to do what the law wants me to do. But I continually do what I don't want to do. Uh, It's sin in me. He's not being irresponsible. He's getting down to very careful analyses of what's going on. And so the conclusion is simply, it's just simply, on the one hand, with my mind... I serve the law of God. I want to do what the law is wanting me to do. But on the other hand, and always being imprisoned by it, that's the conclusion. There's no victory in Romans 7. He's completely defeated at every turn. 
I serve the law of sin. So he's just giving a very objective so summary. Still, he's still speaking from... This isn't like a conclusion then. It sounds like it's a conclusion where he says, so then, like, like, basically he's been saved through Jesus Christ, you know, that he's been delivered from this body of death. It, I guess it, it looks okay. like a conclusion. Yes, it is a conclusion. Suddenly, you get a, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. I mean, that just comes out of nowhere. And I think this is the same thing. You know, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And Paul, again, he's a believer looking back on what happened to him that resulted in him needing Christ. He looks back and says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's kind of a, uh, uh, you know, uh, an excursus. It's a doxological excursus. And then he comes back and summarizes the whole thing. Uh, and the summary is, here's what was going on. With my mind, I serve the law of, law of God. I want to do what the law wants me to do. But with my flesh, the law of sin. It continually comes in. And that's why 8, 1, and 2 make sense. See, the cry, Doug Moo translates it this way. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from condemnation? Well, he comes back in chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, I just, I'm in the wrong book. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And that's exactly what the wretched man is crying for. To be set free from the law of sin and death. So yeah, I think if you just allow that to be a bit of an excursus, uh, that helps to see the flow. All right. Well, that's probably enough Romans 7. But why, why belabor it? Because I think Romans 7 exists in the back of our mind in a way that hinders our exploitation of the freedom that God has given us. I think if you take Romans 7 as a believer, and again, my point isn't to be right or wrong about that, but I think there's real-life consequences to it. If you take Romans 7 as a believer, what do you do with those besetting sins? And again, I've been in the counseling room for many, many years and has expended hours and hours and days and weeks talking to people about their sin, talking to men about their sin. And you know, we men all, we struggle very similarly. We're angry. We're lustful. We're insensitive. Uh, we can just be real bulldogs. And it doesn't make for good team dynamics, whether it's in marriage or in a church. And men want to and I'm not talking about weenie men. I hope you're not getting any impression here. I like football. I think football's a good sport. Um, I think soccer. I won't go there. Uh, I like football. I like football. But, but I'm simply saying that we struggle and, and, and easily lean toward addictive behaviors in many different areas, don't we? Uh, I don't know. It's just part of who we are as men. We're ambitious, we have drive, and we can struggle in a big way. If I've got Romans 7 as a believer, at one point I can simply say, I want to do the right thing. 
I just can't do it. This seems to describe my life. I really want to do the right thing. I just continually fail to do the right thing. And it doesn't mean that we don't have compassion for the struggle. I'm not, I'm not trying to go into drill sergeant mode. You know, just straighten up, soldier. Fly straight. Fly right. You know, that's not what we're saying. But we're also not wanting to understate the already. And if God has delivered us from sin's power, as I think Romans 6 through 8 repeatedly says, if we're no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness, if we're now able to not present our members as instruments of unrighteousness, to not let rain, sin reign in our mortal bodies, if sin no longer has dominion over me, so that when it says jump, I not only say how high, I don't say that, I don't say yes, I'm free to say no to sin, then that really gives me a bit of a leg up. Maybe, maybe this analogy is helpful. You know, I told you I love watching Patrick Mahomes. You know, he's doing all his dancing and stuff back there. When he lets it fly, do you think he thinks to himself, Gosh, I don't know if this is going to get to the guy. In fact, I'm doubting, really, if it's going to if it's going to get to the receiver. It's probably going to get intercepted. Do you think that's what he's thinking? I mean, you watch him play. Doesn't he play with confidence? No, he's got. He can back it up. He can back it up. I mean, he does these all these things, and you know, probably at first the coach is going crazy. This guy's like an acrobat out there. But you watch him long enough and you think he knows exactly what he's doing. And even when he runs, you can kind of get scared to think. I mean, he's not that big of a guy. And these, you know, six foot five guys that can run a, a 40 and four five, you know, and they weigh 260 pounds. I mean, they'd love to just get one crack at this guy. But he, you know, he runs and he just tiptoes out of bounds. You know, you see the guy knows what he's doing. He's playing with confidence. When he lets it fly, he's, he's confident that he's going to make the completion. It's not arrogance. It's confidence. See, Romans 7, as a, as a believer, I think undermines our confidence that we can attack sin. It undermines our confidence that Romans 8, 12, and 13 are true. Let's look at that for a minute here. Again, this isn't arrogance. It's certainly not works theology. It's confidence that you can walk in newness of life because God has done what's necessary to enable you to do that. Look at what Romans 8, uh, 23, I'm sorry, Romans 8, 12, and 13. This, by the way, is the passage that is the grounding for John Owen's great treatise on mortification of sin. The problem is, this is an indicative. It's not an imperative. Now, there is an imperative of the same verb in Colossians 3.5. He should have used that because he treats this as if it's an imperative. But it's not an imperative. It's not a command. It's stating what is. Let me read it. 8, 12, and 13. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh... 
you must die. But, if by the Spirit you are putting to, de- to death or mortifying the deeds of the, sp- of the body, you will live. So what marks every believer, every true believer? What is every believer doing by the Spirit? He's putting to death the deeds of the flesh. He's not the Roman 7 guy. When he goes back into the pocket, he's confident that he can put to, to death the deeds of the flesh. Why? Because the Spirit of God dwells in him. Now, I'm not saying this is a, you know, snap your fingers, oh, no problems with anger. Snap your fingers, oh, no problems with lust. Obviously, we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. <laughs> Effort is required. But the question is, in Christ, do you have what it takes to mortify the deeds of the flesh? Yes, you better. Because if you're not, you shall die. It's black and white. You're either in the flesh or you're in the Spirit. You're either mortifying the deeds of the flesh and you live, or you're not and you die. So these are very clear spheres. And the starting point here, and the reason that Romans 7 therefore is important, is because we need the confidence. This battle with sin is hard enough without adding to the difficulty by thinking we're only half free to be able to attack it. That's the phrase, that's the the way that Calvin says it. We only are half free. And I'm like, if the sun shall set you free, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. That doesn't mean that there's no more struggle with sin. I'm not saying that. There is a freedom we're looking forward to when sin finally will be vanquished. But right now, sin's power has really, actually been broken. And so, as I'm trying to be qualified to be an elder, as I'm trying to exercise self-control in all those areas, as I'm trying to walk in newness of life, I know that there's a power within me that will enable me to do that. And that power... If you go back to your outline, that power, this new status in Christ allows me to do two things. And I think these two things are the groundings for the process of holiness. The first is it frees me to behold Jesus. I call him the sacrifice. Because when I think about our walk in holiness... I think Calvin is right in his Institutes when he says its essence is self-denial. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him uh, hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, uh, or he cannot be my disciple. Anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So this idea of sacrifice, I think, is at the core of walking with God. And the first thing is, we behold the sacrifice. We behold Jesus. We're cultivating a life that beholds Jesus. Because, as Greg Beale said in his book, you become what you behold. 
you become what you behold. You know, they used to, the phrase used to go around you, you are what you eat. Do you remember that silly phrase? You know, you're not what you eat. You might have some allergic reactions to stuff. And if you eat too many donuts, you'll have some evidence of that. But you are what you behold. You're transformed. That's what Second Corinthians 3 says. But we all, with unveiled face, the veil's been removed, right? That's the old covenant. They couldn't see. They were blind. They couldn't see Jesus. Jesus said, you search the Scriptures because you think then in, you have, in them you have eternal life. But it is these that what? Bear witness of Me. They couldn't see Jesus. But the veil was removed. When you turn to the Lord, the veil's removed. So that we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being what? Transformed into that same image. From glory to glory. From one degree of glory, the ESV says, to one degree of glory to another. So this process of becoming holy, becoming like Christ, starts with us exercising this freedom, this power that we have to actually see Jesus. Yes, through a mirror dimly, through a glass darkly, we don't see Him as He is. We will one day, and when we do, we shall be like Him, right? But even fixing our hope on seeing Him as He is, is sanctifying, isn't it? Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him, the hope that one day I will finally see Him as He is, everyone who has this hope fixed on Him does what? Purifies Himself, just as He is pure. 1 John 3. So, you've been freed. If you know Jesus Christ, you've been freed to behold Jesus Christ. And in that mystical process of gazing on the beatific vision, You're transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so, as aspiring leaders, we want to cultivate our ability to behold Christ. And of course, where do we behold Him chiefly? In His Word, but not exclusively. Where else do we behold Jesus? Brandon? Yes, he is the agent of the new creation, but he was the agent of the old creation, was he not? Nothing came into being. You guys are studying the Gospel of John, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Nothing that has come into being except by him, and everything that has come into being has come into being through him. So when we look out at nature, we're trying to train our minds To see Jesus. To look at that through the grid of the agent. The second person of the Trinity. The Word. God spoke. And it came into being. How else do we see Jesus? You're looking at Him right now. And I'm looking at Him too. Because Jesus Christ dwells in us, doesn't He? Now, I know it's not a perfect image. By any stretch. But as we fellowship with one another, as we fellowship with one another, we're actually getting a chance to see Jesus, who is manifesting himself through us individually and as a body. 
I remember my mother-in-law had Alzheimer's. My wife's a nurse, and uh, she deteriorated quickly. And none of the other siblings, they were all in Ohio. She was in Ohio. We were from Ohio, but now we're in Vermont. And they just kind of threw up their hands. They didn't know what to do. So we redid our basement. We have a walkout basement. We completely gutted it and built it into a handicapped mother-in-law apartment. And she came to live with us. Now, when she came to live with us, my mother-in-law was a believer. She already didn't know who Sue was. She didn't know who I was. Her, uh, who I was. She, she was very limited in her interactions. She was kind of down to rote phrases, you know, that you would just know to say these things in a conversation. And uh, she deteriorated. She actually lived with us for eight years, and uh, we took care of her. I was Sue's orderly, and uh, about five years into it, she became completely bedridden, and was and completely ceased to talk really just seemed to be almost in a comatose state she wasn't but she was totally withdrawn and you know i was committed to trying to help my wife care for her and caring for an adult is a lot more difficult than caring for children we had five kids and I could handle that pretty well, change diapers, all that stuff. didn't really bother me. This was a whole other level. Um, and one day, I was in feeding her. We would feed her. You can use Ensure. We would use, there was another, Carnation Instant Breakfast. was was exactly the same content, a lot cheaper. And we would give her a big glass of that. And it would take about an hour to feed her. She could still swallow, but it was very slow. So we would go through this process, and I was feeding her one morning, and I was struggling a little bit. I mean, I had a million things to do, and, you know, this is an endless task. But it hit me. I was serving Jesus because my mother-in-law knew Christ. And I immediately thought of Matthew chapter 25. We see Jesus in one another. We serve Jesus when we serve one another. So the church is a wonderful opportunity to interact with Jesus. Uh, Jesus as he is manifesting himself through the lives of believers. But of course the Bible is the chief place. And so next time we're going to be talking about interpreting the Bible not just grammatically and historically but Christocentrically. You want to cultivate your ability to see Jesus, and that in part is dependent on your ability to interpret the Bible the way the apostles did, because they saw Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, the second thing we're free to do, and we're perfect, it's five till six. I'll have you out of here a minute early. Um, is we're free to not only behold the sacrifice, Jesus Christ, and be transformed accordingly, but we're free to present as a sacrifice. That's the upshot of the entire book of Romans. We get to chapter 12. Everybody on my shelf says that that therefore takes into consideration the entire book. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Same word from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, uh, that you may prove what the will of God is, good and acceptable and perfect. So, I'm beholding the sacrifice, and I'm being transformed. I'm presenting as sacrifice, and I'm being transformed. This is the path to holiness. Now, obviously, you say, well, Wes, is there any confession of sin in that? Yeah, as soon as I start beholding the sacrifice, my goodness, what rises to the surface immediately? All of my failings, uh, you know, when I'm, I got, try to go through the Psalms every five months. So I do one a day, 30 a month, five months gets you through 150. And, you know, I'm planning to do this. I read through the Psalm. I'm trying to behold Jesus as I read the Psalm. And all sorts of things that I wasn't thinking about before I did that <laughs> flood my mind. And, and I just start confessing and asking God to... Help me, give me grace to not continue with that process or with that pattern. It, you, you can't look at Jesus and not look at yourself because the comparison is, sometimes it's painful. But then you can't look at Jesus, you can't behold him and not be willing to follow him. He is our substitute. He laid down his life for the sheep. And we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So we present ourselves to God. You know, the language there in Romans chapter 12 is the language of the priests in old Israel. And when would they do the sacrifices? Morning and evening. Every single day, morning and evening. That's the language that's employed So we're presenting ourselves every day to God as a living sacrifice, holy and living sacrifice, asking God to use us as he will, offering up our lives for his service. And that's the process uh, of not only becoming qualified to be an elder, but remaining qualified and growing and being able to therefore have the credibility the moral authority to minister to others, uh, which is necessary. All right. Well, we got through it. Um, I'm hoping that was helpful, stimulating. You're free to disagree with me on Romans 7. I mean that sincerely. Can I close for us in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for our great champion, our leader, our prince, our king, who came that he might offer up his life for the sheep, that we might be saved. And we thank you that he's at work in our lives right now, preparing us for that great day when we shall be holy and blameless, without spot or wrinkle, as his dearly beloved, as he presents us to himself. And I want to pray that you would encourage these men to be confident, not in themselves, not I, but Christ 
through me, but through Christ who is in me, as we sang this morning, but to be confident nonetheless that you are mightily at work in our lives. You've given us your spirit. You've circumcised the foreskin of sin from our hearts. You've written the law of God on our hearts. Um, And you therefore have strengthened us to be able now to fulfill your law, to love our Christian neighbor as we love ourselves. And so I pray that these men would be encouraged to attack besetting sins, to take responsibility for them, and to know that you will lead them in your triumph through Christ. So, Father, thank you for this time. We give all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Good. If you came in late and didn't get one of the handouts or one of the brochures, just come on up and we'll give it to you. And then just a personal word. I've been asked a lot today. Uh, Logan, is this your position? Where do you stand on Romans 7? Um, <laughs> I checked with him before I preached it. He did indeed. Uh, this, this, I, I would not have... Um, I would have asked Wes to preach something different if that was contrary to, to where I stood on this. Um, this is, I know this is, this is kind of disorienting because we, we use that text often to, uh, to really give explanation to our experience, right? I mean, we, we all uh, are, are trying to figure out why do we still wrestle with sin? If the power of sin has been broken, why are we still wrestling? Uh, you know, we look to Romans 7 and we say, ah, there's, there's the explanation. Um, you can find that explanation in other places of Scripture about our, our continuing wrestle with sin. But when you follow the flow of Romans, when you understand the flow of the argument of the book, uh, it becomes very hard uh, to see it any other way. It would be a, an interruption in what Paul is doing if he is talking about himself as a believer. And the first time I, I saw this was, was my Greek professor in, in seminary. Uh, he walked us through this, and I, I had the same kind of visceral response, like, no, there's no way. Uh, but once I, once I saw it, I wrestled with it. I wrestled with the implications of what it means if Romans 7 is a believer, what that means for the believer. Uh, really take that in. That I'm, I'm, I'm of the flesh. I'm sold under sin. Uh, those are, that's, that's significant. Um, so wrestle with those implications, but wrestle with the flow of Paul's argument. Uh, be a good Berean. Our theology needs to rise out of Scripture, needs to rise out of what, what, what the apostolic authors are doing, rather than taking our theological grid or our experiencing and, and slapping it down on Scripture to determine our interpretation. Um, so this is, you, you guys might wrestle with this and think, no, I think Pastor Logan's wrong, I think Wes is wrong. And, and that's, this is a place we're free to disagree on this. But it would be a good exercise either way to really get into the book and try to wrestle with what Paul is saying. And Wes has gifted you with the structure, uh, the format, uh, how he's seeing this book. It's, it's really helpful. So wrestle through it. And if you still have some, some, some questions, some issues, come talk to me. I'd be happy to sit down with any one of you guys and, and wrestle through those questions as well. So just wanted to give that out. I want to put that out there, uh, you, you know, so I can be asked a little less. Everyone knows where I stand. <laughs> but... Um, but yeah, it, it, the implications that Wes brought up are, are huge. Um, there's, there's a real fight for sin, against sin, and there's a real victory that can be had. And if we see ourselves as the wretched man who cannot do what he wants to do, then there's no victory there. 
Uh, so think through those things.